this afternoon. Now, I reckon one of the one of the hardest lessons to learn in life is that we're not great at everything. Now, you, you see that the first time your children go to a sports carnival and realise, wow, uh, I, I, I can't be good at everything, or they, they have their first proper test uh, at school. And often, you know, well, you know, we've all got that friend who actually is good at everything, or well, at least compared to us. Uh, but for most of us, there comes a point in our life where we realise, wow, I'm not actually a great runner, or I'm not actually a great academic, or I'm not actually great at woodwork, or I'm not actually great at whatever it is, music. Uh, and, and that's a hard lesson to learn. And it's a hard lesson to learn for grown-ups too. It's not just our kids who struggle with it. Uh, even as grown-ups, I reckon uh, the thing is we, we struggle to see and admit where we're weak. Uh, we struggle to see and admit where we're weak. Uh, where we, we often will see our strengths, but we'll, we'll often not see our weaknesses. Oh, I guess that probably depends on your personality. Uh, some of us here will, will only see where we're weak and not see our strengths. Sorry about that. Um, but I think on the whole, we're, we're often blind uh, to our weaknesses. We all have weaknesses. We've all got things we're strong at, things that we're weaker at. Um, but, uh, but often we don't see them. Now, there's one that I have seen, mostly because uh, uh, others in my life have pointed it out, and that is uh, I'm a little bit weak at pronouncing words. Uh, I'll often add extra letters in, uh, or remove letters, or say something completely different. Uh, now, sometimes, well, I'd say often, it doesn't matter. It's not really that big a deal. But sometimes it does matter. Uh, you right remember when we were having a plebiscite uh, in our country, a vote on whether we should change the definition of marriage. And I announced it three times in church as plebsical. Um, now... Uh, Lucy and Rob both noticed and were in tears laughing and I couldn't work out why um, and, and you can say oh, I'm pretty sure that they, they didn't hear anything after that uh, it, complete, it was meant to be a solemn and a serious sort of announcement and it just turned into a little bit of an uproar um, so, so sometimes our weaknesses don't really matter uh, but sometimes our weaknesses are more severe or they have bigger consequences uh, some things it doesn't really matter if you're weak at, other things it really does. Uh, now, it's popular to say in our culture, you'll see uh, Instagram shots or Facebook memes uh, that, that say something like, like this, if you don't like me for who I am, then leave, because I'm not going to change and be someone that I'm not, or a variation of that. It's just saying, this is how I am, if you don't like it, good luck to you. Uh, and, and it's a pretty popular thing to say in our culture, and I think it's crept in uh, to, to our church. I think it's crept into our Christian culture. This idea that, well, that's just the way I am. That's, a, that's one of my weaknesses and that, that's just the way I am. So deal with it because that's the way God made me uh, or whatever it might be. Uh, and occasionally that's okay. Occasionally it's okay uh, to recognise that this is just a weakness that I have. Uh, like if you've you know, got a really terrible singing voice, we're not probably going to put you in charge of leading singing. That, that's okay uh, to recognise that. But mostly, uh, mostly this is a really unhealthy attitude to have, especially uh, when it comes to spiritual health or godliness. But I think it's crept in. Uh, that it's just uh, to say, well, that's just the way I am. It's just not an ex- acceptable excuse. Uh, and, and I think it's good to just pause here and recognise that we'll all be tempted to do that. We'll be tempted to minimise our weaknesses and say, oh, well, they're not that important or it doesn't really matter or that's just the way I am. Uh, but when it comes to spiritual health, health when it comes to godliness, that's, that, we just can't say that. We can't have that attitude uh, in us. Uh, 
Um, so, uh, how do we work out where we're weak? How do we work out where our weaknesses are? We all have blind spots, and by definition, you can't see your blind spots. That's, that's the thing. If you think you can work out what your blind spots are, you've misunderstood the term blind spot. You know, by definition, you can't see it. Uh, we all have them, uh, and we can't see them clearly, but there is one who can see clearly. There is one who offers critique and identifies our blind spots, who sees and knows and always gets that critique spot on, unlike uh, lots in our culture. And in today's passage, this one begins his assessment of a church in Ephesus. And here's what he says. He says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. What we have here is the introduction to a, a letter to a, to a church from Jesus. Uh, in chapter 1 of Revelation, we read this amazing description of Jesus that was rich, uh, that had all these Old Testament references sandwiched in, I like to say sausaged in, all the Old Testament just jammed into one casing and out pops, wow, it's Jesus, he's the fulfilment to all the, all, everything in the Old Testament, here's the climax. And, and in these letters, uh, they actually pick out one element of who Jesus is, of what he's like, to, to introduce this letter. And so we get this uh, description or this introduction to the church in Ephesus and we see it's from the one who, who walks among the lampstands. And we know from chapter 1 the lampstands are the churches. Uh, from the one who holds in his hands the angels or the, the messenger, literally the messenger of the churches. Um, and, and that's emphasising something about Jesus. It's emphasising his knowledge. He's the one who who walks among your church. He's seen your church. It's it's almost a description in chapter 1 of Jesus as a gardener, walking among his trees, walking among his lampstands, watching, observing, seeing what has to happen. He's the one who knows, who's in control. They're they're his lampstands. It's emphasising his control. He's He's got the angel of your church or the messenger of your church in his hand. Now, how big do you have to be to, to put someone in your hand? You know, when you see a little newborn baby, uh, especially if the dad's got a massive hands, not like me, and you see this tiny little baby in the hand, you think, wow, they're so small. And Jesus is holding all the angels, all the, the messengers of these churches in his hand. He's powerful, he's in control. He knows these churches intimately. So when Jesus comes to critique this church... When Jesus points in and says, here's what's wrong in your church, here's what's wrong in your life, we, we have this context. This is coming from the one who knows, who's been walking among your lampstand, who's been watching, who sees everything. This is the one who's in control, who's all-powerful, who holds in his hands your angel, your messenger. He's the boss, he's the king. So when it comes to Jesus offering a critique, there's no excuse Now, excuse when someone makes a criticism of us, we'll often say, oh, but you don't know all the details. But you're not in my shoes. You you don't get it. Well, we can't say that when Jesus offers a critique. He knows knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows our church. He knows who we are. He knows this church in Ephesus. Now, as we come to reading this letter, uh, first of all, we have to recognise that this letter is to a real church in a real time and place. Ephesus still exists, not as a city, uh, not as it was, uh, but this is a, this is a city. 
this is a real church, a real congregation who had a real life. Uh, and so it's not an abstract letter. It's not a hypothetical letter. It's a real letter to real people with a real situation, a real time and place. But it's also got an eye, I guess you'd say, to all Christians. We saw that a couple of weeks ago as we looked at this, that Revelation is incredibly symbolic. And especially when it comes to the number seven, we get these alarm bells that say, it's symbolism, symbolism, this is significant. There are more churches than seven in Asia Minor. And I'm sure they all would have loved a letter. But, but Jesus, through, through the Apostle John, uh, chose, to, uh, chose to identify seven specifically, deliberately. And that's saying this is to all the churches. Yes, it's to Ephesus, but it's to every church because every church is going to have its own issues. Every Christian are going to have their own issues. And these letters are real and relevant to us today as they are to the Ephesians. So as we go through today, first we're going to see, well, what does this say to the Ephesian church? How would they have read it? How would they have understood it? What, what does it mean for them? But we're also going to ask, well, what does it mean for us? Because God ordered that this letter be uh, recorded and written down and read to all the churches, not just the Ephesians. He ordered that this be read to all the Christians in the area. And so he, he's decreed that it be preserved and protected for us too. So that's, uh, that's where we're going to head. Uh, the other thing that we see as we come into Revelation 2 and the next couple of chapters is that this is the first of seven letters, seven letters to seven churches. And each of, the, uh, each of these letters actually follows the same pattern. And, and we'll flag this each week as we go through. First, we see Jesus describe himself in some way. Uh, we just saw that, didn't we? He, from him who walks among the lampstands, who holds the angels in his hands. Uh, so that's the element of Jesus that he, he chooses to describe himself as. Each letter has, has a different element that, that is used to introduce them as Jesus describes himself. Um, we also then see, so he describes himself, then he gives him a thumbs up for something. He says, I've seen... Uh, something good, thumbs up, you've done well. And he, 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 he praises them for something. But then he takes issue with them for something. He, he offers a critique. He says, you've done well, but... Think, oh, what's coming now? You've done well, but I, I know something. Here's something that uh, is an issue. Uh, he moves on to warning them, showing them the consequences of what will happen uh, if they don't listen to this warning. Uh, and he, he finalises each letter by offering a promise to those who overcome, who, who conquer. Uh, and that's the pattern that we're going to see through each of these letters. It's the pattern we'll see today to this letter to the church in Ephesus. And it's worth saying as well at this point that it is a letter to a church. A church, I don't know if you're aware, that the word church literally means gathering or assembly. Uh, so it was actually in Ephesus, in the book of Acts, that there was a riot in Ephesus. But in the Greek, in the original language, the word is there was a church. The word church was used for the word riot. So it literally means gathering or assembly. But as we go through the New Testament, we see this word, this normal Greek word that means gathering, uh, evolve to define a group of people who gather together. So it's a community of people who gather together in a regular way. They, they become the church and they're part of a broader community of people, of all God's people of all time, who will one day gather together in paradise, worshipping God forever. So, so the church is it's not a building, it's not a place, it's not a time or even an... It's, it's a group of people who do something together, who gather. So our church, Lake Mac Church, is defined by those who gather together. You can't be a part of Lake Mac Church if you don't gather. You can't be a part of the gathering if you're not... Gathered. Yeah, it makes sense. It's very logical. And so that's 
that's what's happening here. So it's, a, it's addressed to this group of people, but everyone in that group, this, this whole group, is made up of individuals. And we get that through the whole New Testament, don't we? It's a body made up of many parts. It's a group made up of many people. Um, so as Jesus speaks to these churches, he's speaking to the church as a whole, but he's also speaking to every individual in that church. And in lots of the churches, he says, hey, if you like this, well done. If you like this, hey, watch out. He recognises that there's different, we're at different places. Uh, but on the whole, um, it is a community. So, so as we go through, we'll have to apply these letters personally and individually to us. But as each one of us applies it individually and personally to ourselves, that will actually change the whole community. As we all make little changes in our lives, our whole community will change. So that's, that's how churches develop culture. That's how churches change when all the individuals. So that's what we're doing. We'll be thinking, how does this affect our whole church? But particularly, how does it affect me as a part of this church, as a part of this gathering? And that's how the Ephesians would have heard it too. Um, so what we're going to do today is we're going to step through this letter. And, and the first thing that we see Jesus praise them for is a bit of an odd thing. Uh, but Jesus actually celebrates intolerance. So that's the first thing. They, he celebrates their intolerance. Uh, but then he shows them there's a problem. And uh, the problem is that uh, they've, they've, they've forgotten or they've let go of the love that they had at first. Uh, and then we're going to see him call them to repent. He'll, he'll spell out the consequences, the warning of if they don't repent. Uh, but he'll offer them this, this great promise that if they do repent, what, what will be rewarded. Uh, and finally, we're going to finish up today. Uh, we're seeing what this means for us. Um, uh, and we're going to think, well, how, how do I tell if I'm loving? What, what does this look like? Where what might we have fallen into these traps? And we'll end with that, that hands box at the bottom of your sermon sheet, as we always do. And it's always a good practice to think, if I was to write something in that box, what would it be? Uh, and it can't be something I've learned. It's got to be something, well, what, what can I do? What should I do as a response to this message uh, this message from Jesus. Um, so that's where we're going to head. Um, so first of all, uh, Jesus described himself, the one among the lampstands who holds the, the angel, uh, and then he celebrates their intolerance. And here's how he does that. Verse 2. I know your deeds, he says, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, but you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You've persevered and endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Now, there's a few things that this, uh, this church are intolerant of. Now, intolerant gets a bad rap uh, in today's society. And in some ways, in some areas, intolerance is not a good thing. But here it is. And we see first, uh, they're intolerant of laziness and compromise. I don't know if you saw that. Um, they, they, all of them, their church, they work hard, they persevere. Uh, down in verse 3, they've, they've persevered again, they're enduring hardship, they've not grown weary. Uh, this, is, this is describing a church who are real go-getters. There, there's no one just, you know, hanging around, just riding along, getting a free ride in this church. They're working hard, they're persevering. Um, and and they, they're not going to tolerate compromise. Uh, you know, you've endured hardships for my name. This is a church that has gone through some deep water, that has been persecuted, that has been hurt, that has received pressure for Jesus' name. Not just because they're bad or nasty people, but for Jesus' name. And they've endured that. They've persevered through that. They've, they've held on to that. 
Oh, this is a church who they don't, they don't tolerate compromise. They don't tolerate laziness. They, they, they value hard work and uncompromising commitment um, to, to work, uh, to doing good. And we've got to recognise here that this is a good thing. Jesus celebrates. He says, this is good. You're not lazy. You're hard workers. You're not compromised. You're, you're, you're faithful. You've endured hardships. And, and he gives them a thumbs up. That is good. But they're also, they're also intolerant, though, of uh, bad theology and practice. And this is, this is also a good thing. Uh, here's what he says. He says in the second half of verse 2, I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, but you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You've tested uh, and, and have found them false, wherever we are. And down in verse 6, uh, but I also have this in your favour, you hate the practice of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. It, it's very odd to hear Jesus talking like this, to be saying, yeah, you're intolerant, you hate, you hate. He says, this is good. You hate the practices of this, this group, this cult. Uh, you, you can't tolerate wicked people. You, you can't tolerate bad teaching. You, you actually test, you test their teaching. You test what they're saying uh, against the other scriptures. You are intolerant. And these are good things. These are celebrated. And we'll actually see through some of the other letters that on the other side of things, some churches are criticised for compromising, for not holding to the truth. But not the Ephesians. Not the Ephesians. They, they don't tolerate wickedness. They don't tolerate bad teaching. They don't just let anyone say what they want. They, they check it. And they find out if they're false or not. And they kick them out if they're not. They don't let this cult called the Nicolaitans. We actually don't know much about the Nicolaitans. But it seems that they're a group who endorsed, I guess you'd say a synchronism. That, that, or syncretism. That, that endorse uh, this idea that you can be a Christian and... Uh, be involved in the world. You can, you can worship God and you can fully engage in the rest of society, the rest of culture. <clears throat> From what we can tell, that's, that's basically what they say. And Jesus said, good on you, you don't tolerate that. It's not on and you're right, I, I hate that teaching and you hate it too and that is good. Uh, now I reckon uh, the Ephesians at this point would be feeling pretty good. Can you imagine being in the church in Ephesus? You've heard this amazing description of Jesus read out from the front. It's a letter. He says, today you're on the church in Ephesus. You're like, yeah, that's us. You're hard workers. Woo! You're, you're persevering. You do really well. I, I reckon you'd be catching each other's eye and doing this one. Yeah. yeah, yeah, we do all right. We do all right, don't we? And then comes the next sentence. The reader reads on. Yet, but, I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. But, Jesus says, there's something missing. Now, what we might be tempted to think that, that forsaking some love, it's not that big an issue. Especially when you think about the things that they're good at. You know, they're on about the truth. Tick, that's important. You know, good theology. Uh, they're rejecting wickedness. They don't, know, they don't have immorality in their congregation. Yep, tick. They're not lazy. They work hard. Tick. Yeah, you'd be thinking, yeah, they're, they're pretty good. Does it really matter if they're not quite as loving as they used to be? If they miss a bit of that you know, touchy-feely stuff? Oh, they're hard workers. They've persevered. They've got the truth right. Does it really matter? Well, to answer that, let, let's flick back to 1 Corinthians. I've got it on the screen. 
This is the uh, Apostle Paul writing to a church in Corinth, and, 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 he, and he speaks about the importance of love. And here's what he says. He says, If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I'm a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. We'll just pause. It's a really good example, Robbie. Thanks for that. Well done. At the right time, a phone going off, you're really grateful for. Whenever my alarm doesn't go off in the morning, I'm really annoyed. But at the wrong time, it's a clanging, resounding gong. Uh, and that's how Paul, that's how Paul describes uh, what this lovely speech is without love. I speak in the language of men and angels. That's saying this, I, I can be as impressive and use all the best words. It can sound fantastic. But without love? Nothing. It's a, it's a, it's a gong. It's a, not even a good gong. It's the kids with the tambourine. You know, it's, it's not in time. It's just obnoxious. We love them though, so that's good. Um, he says, if I have the gift of prophecy, but can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge... And I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love. I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It's not proud. It does not dishonor. It does not dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. Keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight. In evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails, Paul writes. Where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they'll be stilled. Where there's knowledge, it will pass away. Over to verse 13. And now these three remain, faith, hope and love. And the greatest of these is love. These three remain, you know, knowledge, perseverance, standing up for the truth. No, love is the greatest of these. Now, we we might look good. We might do well. We We might even have this great effect on our world. But if the crucial element is missing, Paul says, it's worthless. I am nothing. I gain nothing without love. And perhaps even more confronting, if we flick over to 1 John 3, um, so this is the same author as Revelation, we're pretty sure. Uh, 1 John 3, John writes, We know that we have passed from death to life. How? Because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. But this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, he writes, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. That's that's pretty plain language that's, Hard hitting. John shows us that that a love for God and a love for our brothers and sisters, his his children, the Christian church, that that they're 
inextricably linked. We can't love God and not Christians. We can't say, I like Jesus, I love, I love God, and not show, not feel a genuine love towards Christians. If we're in God's family, if God is our father, if we've truly been adopted into that family, we will love the other children. The Bible puts it really plainly. It's not an optional extra. It's not just that, well, some people are really loving and others aren't. And if that's your weakness, that's okay. No. If that that love for Christians is not there, that, that real love that shows itself in our actions, in our practice, in our habits, if that love isn't there, John writes, we are not of God. The love of God is not in them. That's saying they're not a Christian. That's saying they're not saved. They're not part of the family. It's really confronting, isn't it? Of all the different attributes and and recognitions of what does a Christian look like, this is one of the few that consistently the New Testament says all Christians will show this. We're a diverse bunch. We have different gifts. We have different strengths. But this is one of the few where Jesus says, where his apostles say, all true Christians will show love for one another. It is one of the marks of true Christians. So what should the Ephesians do? Can you imagine how they're feeling now? They're looking at each other. Yeah, we're doing all right. I don't think there would have been a single person catching someone else's eye at this point. You'd all be studying the floorboards. You'd hear a pin drop. What should they do? Repent. Verse 5. Consider, Jesus says, consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. This this doesn't sound like gentle Jesus, meek and mild. It doesn't sound like the popular Jesus whose job it is to forgive, who just lets things slide because that's his job. Repent, it literally means change, turn around. Remember what you did and be ashamed that you're not doing now. Change. And if you don't, I will shut you down. That's what I mean, I'll take your lampstand. There will cease to be a church in Ephesus. We think, well, surely not, Jesus. You wouldn't close your own church, would you? Yes, he says, I would. And I will. If you do not repent. This, this unloving attitude, it's so pervasive and tolerated in this church, the whole church is at risk of being closed down, of being removed as a light to the city of Ephesus. That's what's at stake. Both individually and corporately, Jesus, it's a threat. It's a warning. If you like, it's a promise that if you do not uh, repent, if you don't change from your unloving ways, your unloving attitude, you won't be in my family. You won't have a place in the kingdom of God. Your church will cease to exist. This is harsh. These are strong words. But that's not the end of the letter. And isn't that wonderful? Verse 7. Here's how this letter finishes. Whoever has ears, let them hear 
what the Spirit says to the churches. That's a phrase that Jesus uses. It comes originally from Exodus and it comes up again and again. And and when it comes up, almost always it's in the context of repentance. Almost always it's saying you've stuffed up. On your current trajectory, you are heading for death. So listen up. Listen up. Who has ears to hear, let them hear. If you repent to the one who's victorious, who conquers, who overcomes, who changes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. For such a harsh letter, isn't that a wonderful ending? This church are on the brink of Jesus closing them down, of removing their lampstand. He says, you've got nothing. You don't have love, so you've got nothing. And yet he ends with this promise. Uh, uh, we, we've got the, a couple of phrases in our, in our culture. You know, it's, it's not over till it's over. It's not over till the fat lady sings. It's, it's not over till it actually is done and dusted. And I, I think that's the message again and again in these letters. It, it, it doesn't matter how far you've fallen. That's what Jesus says. Consider how far you've fallen. He's not saying because it's only a little way, because it is a long way. It doesn't matter how far you've fallen, how far you've slipped. Unless you are dead, unless you've stopped breathing, unless your brain has stopped ticking over, unless you have ceased to have the ability to come to God in repentance, until that moment, there's still hope. There's still hope. As hopeless as the situation seems, as much as you feel like you might have mucked things up, as sinful as you've become, as proud or arrogant or unloving, there is still time. And, 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 and get this, it's, it's not that you, know, you can sneak in at the last moment and just sort of sit in the corner quietly, you know, really knowing that you don't deserve to be there because, oh, you know, I just got in by the skin of my teeth. That's not how it's described. You're Ephesians, he says. You're Ephesians who have fallen so far, who have lost the crucial thing in your faith. You can come into paradise and eat from the tree that is at the headwaters of the river of life. You can come front and centre and be part of it. If only you will repent. If only you will overcome your sin. If only you will overcome, you will conquer your lovelessness. So do what you did at first. Have the love you had at first. So, so, so what does this mean for us? Well, it depends what our hearts are doing. And I, I'd like to suggest that in all of these letters, there will be something for each one of us. You, you might not have a huge problem with lovelessness, but you're probably not as loving as you could be. Or maybe you'll realise, wow, that, that letter could be describing me. I work hard. I serve, persevere, I don't put up with bad teaching, but well, maybe something's slipped. So, so how, do we, how do we tell if we're loving? How, how do we tell if we've lost our love or if it's still there? Well, I want us to remember the connection between loving God and loving others. And that's how we'll phrase it as we think about what does this look like for us. First of all, what does it look like for us to love God? And I want to ask a couple of diagnostic questions. Please don't answer all, you know, out loud. Just do it in your head. Um, 
What makes you want to obey God? Or maybe you don't want to obey God. If you don't want to obey God, that's, yeah. uh, uh, uh. Uh, And sometimes we'll feel like that. That's a sign that we've lost some love for God. But what is it? If you do want to obey God, you do want to get it right. What makes you want to do that? A couple of options. There's probably more than these. One option is that you want to please him. You want to please him. Uh, It's Father's Day today. I got some wonderful presents. I got not one, not two, but five key rings that say world's best dad. Five. Take that, Rob. Uh, and two magnets that say world's greatest dad. And, and, and my girls, what they wanted to see, they wanted to see my approval. They, they wanted to see me go, I love that, thank you. I love the little paper world's best dad cup that you made. That's what they're looking for. They're, they're not doing a Father's Day gift because they know they should or because they, they need to. It's because they, they, they watch me open. You can see them, they're watching me. Oh, how's he going to look? Is he going to be pleased? How how do you feel when you think about why you want to obey God? Why you want to honour? Is it it because you want him to be pleased? At at your deepest level, is because you, on the last day, when when he meets you and it comes to the judgment, he says, well done, my good and faithful servant. Come and join your master's happiness. Is that that what motivates you? Or is it it just you, you know that you should? Or that you want to qualify for heaven? You go, well, oh, you know, if I, if I don't, I've got to tick these boxes off. That's because I'll, I'll miss out if I don't. You can do the same actions with different motivations. Do you do it to please God or to make sure you're not going to miss out? I think that's a, that's a helpful diagnostic. How am I feeling about uh, our God? How do you feel about spending time with God when you think about a quiet time? How do you feel about that? Do you feel like, oh, I wish Liam and Rob would start, stop talking about quiet times because uh, I, don't, I, I don't want to. I've got more important things to do with my day. Or, or are you feeling like, oh, I, I, I want to get into it. I want to spend some time with God. I want to hear from him, from his word. I want to talk to him. Do you, say, do you think to yourself, I wish I, I wish I could make more time in my day. And then do you translate that so it's not just an excuse and make more time in your day. How do you feel about spending time with God? Do you, do you long to be more like him? Do you look at yourself and then look at Jesus and say, oh, I can't wait. I can't wait to be more like Jesus. What, what motivates you? One of the other big indicators of if we're loving God is if we're loving others. And that comes up again and again. We've already seen that. This is the way that our love for God is most visible. Because that other stuff, you can't see that, generally speaking. But you can see how we love others. It's this only required proof of Christianity that you know, we've seen will be evident in every true believer. So, so when we're doing these actions, when we're, as, as John writes, when we're, we're loving, not in word, but in, but in action and in deeds... When we're doing these, these loving things towards people, might be cooking a meal or might be having a conversation, might be making a phone call, might be visiting them, might be helping them out with something, it might be giving financially. There's a whole range of concrete actions, as John would say in, uh, what's he say in, 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 
in deed and action. But, but what are they motivated by? You could do all those things. You could give money. You could make phone calls. You could have conversations. You could visit people. Be on the care team. You could tick, tick, tick. And you could do all those things with precisely the wrong motivation. And as we were going through in home group this week, I think a really good question to ask as we're doing these actions is, who am I doing this for? And no, it's not just, oh, well, I'm cooking a meal for them, so I'm doing it for them. No, no. Let's get down. What am I feeling? What, what made me think, yes, I will cook that meal. I will stay in this conversation, not leave. I will call them up. I will visit. I will help. I will give money. It could be because we feel that we should. Because we know we ought to, and so we do. But I want to suggest that if you're doing it for that reason, it's not for them. It's for you. It's because I feel that I should. You might be doing it because you think you'll be chalking up some credit with God. And that's good, but that's ultimately not loving, is it? That's for yourself. Or we can be doing it for them. Genuinely for them. Now, now I want to be careful here because our motives are so complicated and mixed that we, we may well never purely have the right motives in this life. God, we're a working progress. That's what God tells us, that he, he's working on us and he'll keep working on us right till the day of Lord Jesus. But, but let's be heading towards that. Let's be getting closer towards that and ask, who am I doing it for? Now, as we move into hands, as you start thinking, well, what am I going to write in, in this box? What will I do? I, I, I want to highlight a danger. Because it's really easy to go straight uh, to how I haven't felt loved. Have you found your mind wandering in this sermon already? Thinking about the people who haven't loved me. I know I did this week as as I was writing this passage. It's easy for us to to go straight to, whoa, there's other people who haven't loved me in the way that I I should be loved. Oh, that didn't work. And that is a massive danger. And in fact, that's the definition of not being loving. Because that's thinking of yourself first. Not thinking of the other. You're thinking of yourself more highly than others. Oh, well, how haven't I been loved? Not thinking, how have I failed to love others or how could I love others more? So first, let's look at how we are failing. Myself, how have I missed out? How have I not taken opportunities to love others? Now, when we think practically, what might this... Uh, look like what might we, we do practically to roll this out? I want to encourage you to this week, constrain it to, I'll give you seven days so that you've got no excuses, seven days, do something for someone else that does not benefit you in any way. You have to think about what that might do. Do something for a, a Christian, for another believer, that, it, that does not benefit you in any way. Because there's a lot of things, like if I... Uh, if I cook a nice meal for Kirst, I know that she'll make me a cheesecake on my birthday, won't she? Um, you know, but, but I can have an alternative motive. Can't you? you can be doing this nice thing, but I know it's because they'll do something nice back. I can have a conversation with that person, but I know it's because I always enjoy having conversations with that person. Is that just for them? Or is it for me? Our motives are mixed, aren't they? Try and find something that you can do, some practical action of love that you can do something that doesn't actually benefit you. Jesus ironically says when you do that, that's when 
we get the most credit with him in heaven. When we're not thinking about ourselves, but when we're thinking about others. But don't be thinking about that. Think about the other. Think about the other. There's a wonderful verse I want to sort of finish this off on. And it's in, in Romans where Paul describes love. He says, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honour one another above yourselves. Jesus says this. Paul says this. A bunch of people say this. and It's different ways of saying the same thing. Love is when you consider others more important than yourselves. When you sacrifice your own interests, what you want, for the sake of others. When when you're not putting what is best for you first. And if you're doing something that you think is a loving action, and you realise that actually this is what I want to do, and it's best for me, well, it might not actually be love. It might, might not be a bad thing to do, but it's not necessarily love. You might be doing it for yourself, not for them. Uh, there's a, uh, a little phrase that um, I, I've been sort of playing with this week and, and I think I can say this, so I'm going to say it. I think true love begins when we start sacrificing. We see that in generosity, don't we, in giving money, uh, giving finances. The true generosity starts when it starts hurting. When you're giving out of your surplus and you don't notice. That's not the Bible's definition of generosity. True generosity starts when we start going without something that I like for the sake of being generous. And I think it's the same with love. True love begins when we start sacrificing. When I'm putting myself second or third or fifth. When I'm letting go of what I want, of my desires, of my needs for the sake of others. What might it look like? What might it look like to sacrifice? Uh, in home group, we had, we had some great conversations about this. It might be the conversation after church. Uh, we've all got people, you know who they are, who you love talking to, who you go and have a chat to, uh, and they just invigorate you. And you think, wow, oh, I love having a chat with that person. Not everyone's like that. And it'll be different for each one of us. We'll have different people who invigorate us. Having a loving conversation with something might, with someone might be staying a conversation that you can see they need this conversation, but oh, it, it, you're giving. You walk away a bit exhausted. And you do that joyfully. You stay there. It might mean visiting someone, and that means not having time with your hobby might mean not doing the overtime. It might mean giving a gift, whether it's financial or practical, helping some brother or sister out. That, that means that you don't have time or money to do something that you would have liked to do. And it might even mean correcting or rebuking someone. And that's, that's one of the versions of love that we see in the Bible. It's not walking around saying, hey, you know, line up everyone, I'll tell you what's wrong with you. That's, that's not what it's talking about, but in the context of a loving relationship, saying, hey, I've noticed, I, I feel like you're drifting into sin here. Now, why would that not be best for me to say that to someone? I'm risking the relationship. I, I don't like having these conversations, so if I ever have to have that conversation with you, please know I'm not happy about it, and I, I don't want to do it, and I'm doing it, you know, oh, dragging myself to have that conversation, because there's a risk. There's a risk that you, you won't like me. You might not like me now, but you won't like me anymore, that you won't relate to me in the way we did. It'll, there's a risk it'll make it weird to not say something when you know you should at the risk of it being weird. Is that loving? 
I don't want to hurt their feelings. We tell ourselves it's loving. It's not. I don't want my relationship to be affected. But loving means putting their best in front of your best. That's what love is. And that's where we see it. That's where the Ephesians were letting themselves down with dire consequences. And that's the risk that might creep into our lives. I actually think we're doing pretty well as a church. I'm encouraged uh, when I see the practical love. I I can see it within our congregation. But we're not there yet. We haven't perfected it. There are people in in our family who have missed out, who maybe don't feel like that. We can can do better at this. So let's not miss this crucial part, but instead remember the love you had at first and overcome, looking forward to that reward that Jesus offers. Let's pray. Father God, we, we thank you that you don't call us to love out of our own strength or off our own bat, but you call us to love because you have loved us first. We thank you that we are actually just following your example. And we thank you that in the community of people that you have gathered together, you have decreed and commanded and called that love would be the mark of this community. We thank you that you've designed a community that isn't uh, overly harsh, that isn't on about only hard work or only right teaching or only truth, but that is marked also by love. And we pray that you would do that work in each one of us and that as you do that, as we work with you towards this end, you would transform our whole church that we might be marked by this in a way that is so obvious and so attractive and so good. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's see.